Well, good morning. It's wonderful to be uh, in your great country again. Uh, we love it. We're on our way home tomorrow, but it's been uh, a whirlwind 13 days. One of my favorite parts of being able to travel, and, and not just to speak, but just to visit with um, Christians in other countries, is to see sort of um, what God is up to, to get to learn um, sort of outside of my own little bubble and see uh, what the Holy Spirit is doing in the world. One of the things that I've been somewhat fascinated um, about over the last several years, um, especially since um, before moving to Kansas City, I pastored a little church in uh, Vermont, which is one of the northeastern states in the United States, um, in a section they call New England. So there's six states, the New England states. Someone from New England here? Fantastic. Where are you from in New England? Boston, Massachusetts. Okay. Nice. Uh, I pastored a church in Vermont. Um, you probably know, and maybe the rest of you might know, New England um, is the least church, least Christian area of the United States. Um, Vermont is the least church state uh, of the New England states, has the highest concentration of people who identify as, as none on their religion. That's N-O-N-E, not N-U-N. That would be very religious if they were... Um, <laughs> We don't have a lot of nuns, but we have a lot of the nuns, non-religion. You know, I have no religion uh, there in Vermont. And so I became somewhat fascinated historically about um, moves of the Spirit of God and, and how places that culturally are difficult, uh, perhaps not um, necessarily hostile to the gospel, but just apathetic or ambivalent um, you know, to the gospel and to the things of the church, um, how we might see some sort of turnaround, or how did some of the movements like the Great Awakening and the student missionary movement and so on and so forth, how did those things come about? Well, you probably know that this year, 2017, is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, at least um, the, the hallmark sort of kickoff of the Reformation movement there in Wittenberg. Martin Luther, uh, we are told, nailed his 95 theses to the church door in October 1517. One of my favorite sort of treasures of that time period in which Ordinary men and women, having the gospel, having the scriptures, um, some of them for the first time in, the, in their own native tongue, how they turn the world upside down. The book of Acts is about how ordinary people turn the world upside down, or rather how the Holy Spirit turned the world upside down through them. One of my favorite treasures out of the Protestant Reformation um, is not just the sort of uh, landmark theology that we get out of the, the sort of gospel recovery movement, but also some of the adoration, some of the worship songs. And this is probably the most famous hymn to come out of the Protestant Reformation by Martin Luther himself. Uh, these are the final two verses of A Mighty Fortress. See if you track with the um, Holy Spirit poetry here. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The Spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. That was a good little accent there on the talk. What I find really remarkable is how 
um, integral the ascension of Jesus Christ is to those very promises. Not just of the Reformation hymn, but of the Reformation theology. Really, of any theology that we might subscribe to in our day and age through which the Lord might um, turn the world upside down again for us. In post-Christian, post-Christendom cultures, primarily in the West, where we see what we might call sort of a a burnt-over district, um, large uh, swaths of irreligious people, people completely um, disinterested in the things of Christ, been there, done that, maybe they went to Sunday school or church when they were a child, or maybe their parents did, but they've long since moved past that. What might shake them up? Well, to understand that Jesus Christ has not just risen from the dead, but eternally lives is crucially important to the way we think of mission and the way we think of the life in the Spirit. The ascension of Jesus Christ, in fact, celebrated um, around this week, sort of you know, after the Easter event, is um, somewhat of a, a forgotten doctrine in the Christian faith, or at least in modern evangelicalism. Like Christ's transfiguration, the ascension is another miraculous event not given near enough coverage in our churches today. The ascension of Christ, however, is a rich well of miraculous power from which we may draw incredibly encouraging sustenance. So I encourage you to turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to Acts chapter 1. I know we're launching your new series here through this great book, but it begins... Not with the resurrection, but with the ascension. Acts chapter 1, we're going to be looking in verses 1 through 11. This is Luke, author of the gospel name for him as well, continuing. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Let's ask our Heavenly Father to help us understand his word and see a vision of the glory of his Son. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that you have not given us the silent treatment, but revealed yourself to us, revealed to us by your Holy Spirit, the very words we need to be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We thank you, Father. We ask that you give us the ears to hear, the eyes to see, the taste buds to discern how delicious your grace is given in your Son. 
And it's in your son's name that we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Well, I, I, I don't know about you, but do you ever get the sense, reading through the Gospels, for instance, um, that Jesus is um, trying to recruit the cream of the crop? Do you get this sense from the disciples at all? That he's looking for uh, the smart guys, the, you know, the, the sharpest tools in the shed, that sort of thing. I don't get this sense at all. And in fact, what I find in an odd way, sort of ironically encouraging, is really just how slow and stupid the disciples often are. I think in the, in the Gospel of Mark, for instance, there's this great sort of, um, the way Mark, uh, you know, casts the narrative or composes the narrative trajectory, uh, you begin with Jesus miraculously feeding 5,000 people, right? So it's a crowd of 5,000 there. Um, he takes just a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish, and miraculously, there's enough to feed the crowd of 5,000 people. Well, if you fast forward just a little bit, Mark shows us that um, they now encounter a crowd of 4,000 people. So if you're not a math person like me, 4,000 is less than 5,000. So it's 4,000 people, and they, and they actually have more bread and more fish than they did before. So, so track with me. Smaller crowd, more resources. And the disciples say to Jesus, how are we going to feed everybody? You think... You know, weren't you just there? Didn't you just see what he did? Well, it gets worse. So Mark has them, like, almost immediately after this. Um, of course, Jesus miraculously feeds the 4,000. Uh, eventually, they're in a boat, and Jesus begins teaching them, and he's using um, bread as sort of the, the um, illustration or the symbol for teaching. And the disciples look at each other. Jesus is saying, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware of the leaven of Herod. And the disciples look at each other and say, is he hungry? How, how are we going to feed him? Does anyone have a sandwich? You know, they're looking at each other and... I've, I, like, how thick can you be to have gone through these multiple episodes and still wonder? But these are the kind of people that God is using. So, again, is that not encouraging? Right? So, the, uh, you know, the world was not turned upside down by experts, but by, you know, converts. People who themselves have been captured by the grace of God. And you see this as each sort of plot point in the gospel begins to unfold. And Jesus is telling them over time before his crucifixion, I'm going to die. My face is fixed. I'm going actually to lay my life down. And they still are you know, thinking that this is all metaphorical. It's all symbolic. When it happens, they're completely taken by surprise, even though he's told them that this is going to happen. He rises again. They're utterly surprised that he has come back from the dead, even though he has been telegraphing to them, this is actually going to happen. I'm going to lay my life down, but I'm going to come back up. I will rise again. All of these things, they're always sort of four or five steps behind. Well, now he's back with them right here in the opening verses of, of Acts, the sort of birth of the early church. He's got 40 days with his followers. He's teaching them some new things before his exit. And in verse 6, you see them asking one of these slow-minded questions yet again. They still don't get it. Is this when you're going to establish your kingdom, they ask. Like the disciples, I would argue that our sights are set far too low. We are often set, our, um, our gaze is often set on our own personal kingdoms or our our own sort of spin on what Christ is doing with his kingdom, the aspects of his kingdom that we most uh, stand to benefit from. That's where we're looking. That's where our hopes are set. That's where, if I can call it this, that's where our idols are. 
And the ascension of Jesus then, not just literally, not just physically, but spiritually lifts our gaze up higher to the place where Christ is. Beyond our own personal desires, beyond our own personal ambitions and aspirations. To see not just the true Lord of the universe, but also what he is doing in all of the world as he upholds the universe by the word of his power. I want to share with you this morning just three things, just three things from this text that the ascension of Jesus Christ means. The first one is this. The ascension means that Jesus is alive eternally. The ascension means that Jesus is alive eternally. Now, you may be saying, well, the resurrection teaches us that, Jared. You know, he came back from the dead and and he is alive. But think about it this way. The ascension is a continuation of the Easter miracle, and by that I mean this. Jesus did not come back from the dead only to die again later. So if you think of every other resurrection that took place before Christ's resurrection, think about it. Lazarus, Jairus' daughter, the widow of Nain's son, Eutychus, Tabitha, all these people were brought back from the dead and then died again later of old age or sickness. However, they actually had to pass through death a second time. Think about Lazarus, for instance. Jesus brings Lazarus back for his sisters. This is a wonderful moment. It demonstrates the power of Christ. It demonstrates that he is Lord over death, that he is Lord over the earth. But for Lazarus, this had to be the biggest bummer ever to happen to him. Right? He, he, he dies, which, I mean, okay, that's a bummer, yes, but he dies... But now he's in the presence of God. He's in the eternal bliss of Abraham's bosom. He gets to enjoy all of the wonders of deathless, sinless life. And what happens? He starts hearing his voice being called from the other side. We want you to come on back, Lazarus. Come back and experience death again and and the broken world. If you're Lazarus, you're like, this is a totally raw deal. All right? Well, he comes back, and of course, it is a wonderful moment for us. We see this great miracle that Jesus has wrought. But Lazarus is going to have to die again. It's the same for all of those whom Jesus healed as well. You think of all the people that, that Jesus gave sight to. Perhaps in their old age, they began to lose that sight again. Or the people who whose bodies Jesus restored. You know, the worst thing to happen to you is, is not that you would die. The worst thing that would happen to you is that you would die after you die. That's far worse, which is why Jesus coming to forgive sins is far better than Jesus coming to restore sight and to restore lepers' bodies and to make the lame walk again. Those are wonderful things, and they demonstrate Christ's lordship over creation. They are signposts, however, pointing away to the day when he will restore all creation. Jesus, when he comes back from the dead, does not get old as, you know, for instance, like Dan Brown, who wrote the Da Vinci Code. He sort of has this theory that Jesus, uh, you know, got married and had kids and lived to, you know, this long life and that sort of thing. No, that's not what happened. Jesus came back from the dead, and then he was taken up into heaven, verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. He did not pass away. He was lifted up. The doctrine of the ascension is, in this sense, a great apologetic for the resurrection, actually. Where is Jesus' body? You would have thought in the sort of ensuing days from this moment, as these apostles are now going around everywhere and saying, Jesus is back from the dead, Jesus has risen, that all the Romans would need to do is, is, is roll back that tomb or produce a body, right? 
In fact, some people claim that the disciples somehow stole Jesus' body. Like, these guys all of a sudden became Ocean's Eleven, and, and you know, after the, like, they pulled off this great heist or something. Do, are, do they seem like the kind of guys who would be able to do such a thing? No, in fact, that sort of begs more belief than the resurrection itself. They've never been able to produce Jesus' body, and it's because he's not here. Literally, he's not here. He is in heaven. He has ascended. Jesus' body will not be found because he took its glorified tangibility into heaven. It is from heaven that Jesus bodily appears to Saul on the road to Damascus, saying, why are you persecuting me? It is from heaven that Jesus bodily reigns and rules. It is from heaven that Jesus bodily comes to appear to John on the Isle of Patmos, saying, I am alive forevermore. Jesus' ongoing life is integral to the gracious promises given to sinners who put their faith in him. Michael Bird says, With the ascension of Jesus, the door into the presence of God is permanently open for us. The ascension is part of the gospel. It's good news for sinners. Why is the ascension good news for sinners? Because if among the many things the gospel means, it means we are united with Christ through faith, it also means that where he is, we will be also. It means we will go to heaven in spirit and heaven will come to us in body. The ascension is the full fruition of the promise of Christ's resurrection being the first fruits of our own resurrection. The ascension means the gospel is better news than we even thought because it holds out the promise, the blessed hope, not just of life after death, but as N.T. Wright says, life after life after death. For now, it's enough to say that the ascension is good news because it reveals to us that Jesus Christ is still alive, still glorious, still saving sinners. Romans 8.34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Or how about the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 7.25? Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. Secondly, the ascension means the Holy Spirit is now ours. The ascension means the Holy Spirit is now ours. There is, of course, a natural sadness on the part of the um, of the apostles, Christ has returned. They have their friend back. There's this wonderful, beautiful reunion scene. If, if you remember, they're having breakfast on the beach. What a wonderful moment that would be to have breakfast on the beach with Jesus. Can you imagine? And then he spends a little over a month with them, teaching them, sharing with them. They've got their friend back. They have Jesus back, their master, their teacher. And now he is departing again. Of course, there is a natural sadness there. When will we see you again, Jesus? When will we see you face to face? But he's comforting them primarily by saying, if if I don't go, then the comforter won't come to you. The comforter won't actually come to indwell you. I have to leave that he might come. And he's already told them this. This is something that he has um, not just telegraphed, but just actually laid out literally for them. John chapter 16, he, he teaches them what's going to happen, the chronology of his resurrection, ascension, and the sending of the Spirit. He says this, But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. You're getting sad because I'm telling you that I'm going to leave. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. 
For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Then he gets really pastoral. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, for whatever he hears he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. What is Jesus saying, essentially, for you to have the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit in a fuller and fresher way, in the way that the Father means for the world to be transformed and redeemed and restored, I must be ascended so that the Holy Spirit can then come. And what a gift the Holy Spirit will be. Look in verse 5 here of Acts chapter 1. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. Look in verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And Jesus isn't just blowing smoke here. He, he keeps this promise after his ascension. We're not going to jump into Acts chapter 2 because I don't want to steal your pastor's you know, thunder out of that you know, text. But when you get to Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit does come. And it's this wonderful moment, sort of the, um, in, in a sense, uh, uh, an aspect of the birthing of the church, really sort of a restorative movement and moment. Because if you think back to the book of Genesis, right, right in the wake of the fall of mankind, as people are at each other's throats, and there's so much injustice, and there's so much brokenness in the world, and people are after their own thing, their own ambitions, their own aspirations. Do you remember the story of the Tower of Babel? They build this tower all the way up to heaven, they say, and it's to, in the text it says, because they want to make a name for themselves. They're doing it for themselves. Not to reach God, but to make a, of themselves gods. And you know what God does with that, right? Do you remember the story of the Tower of Babel? What happens? He comes and he confuses them. He's told them to disperse all over the earth. That's his plan. That dominion would be taken for his glory all over the earth. Habakkuk 2.14, that the knowledge of his glory would cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. That's the mandate he's, he gave to them, the mission he gave to them. Instead, they all congealed, they all coagulated, they built this idolatrous tower to make a name for themselves, and God comes down and he divides them by confusing them and giving them all different languages and all different tongues. Well, what happens in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit comes down? Remember, they're, they're hearing the words, each of them, in their own language. In a sense, Pentecost, which is what that day is called when the Holy Spirit comes, the day of Pentecost is the unbabbling of Babel. What is God doing there? It's not just a neat trick. It's not just a, a miracle to sort of show himself. It is those things. But more than that, what he's doing is this. The Holy Spirit is going to empower, just as Jesus is saying here in Acts chapter 1, you're going to be my witnesses all over the earth. The Holy Spirit is now unifying people, every tongue, tribe, race, and nation. He's making them one people through the grace of God, and the Holy Spirit is doing that through his power. The Son of God incarnate is only one place at a time, tabernacling with us, as it were. But the Spirit of God in the earth indwells every single believer like they are the temple of God. And it's, he is filling every church. It's no wonder that Jesus says to the disciples, you will do greater things than these when the Holy Spirit has come. 
This is why Pastor J.D. Greer says, the spirit inside you is better than Jesus beside you. The Holy Spirit indwelling, omnipresent, uniting the church through Christ, that is the hope of the world. That is our hope. Because he convicts us of sin, and then he comforts us with grace, and he empowers us to share this gospel all over the earth. Thirdly and finally, the ascension means the good news is bigger than you think. The good news is bigger than you think. I see that most of you are young. I don't know how you're thinking about sort of your your life journey, as it were, your life trajectory. Uh, I turned uh, um, 41 last year. I am now in that sort of limbo stage where uh, young people think I'm old, but old people still think I'm young. Anyone ever? I mean, we call it middle age, which is just so weird, you know. And I, I haven't had a crisis, like I'm not trying to buy a sports car or anything like that. It's sort of the midlife crisis. But I do think about this a lot. It's like, so I'm now just sort of like I'm on the downhill slope, right? Like it's all downhill from here. And, and I know, like I can pinpoint for you the exact moment that I, I reached that peak, that I started going downhill. The moment I got old, I can tell you exactly when that moment was. The moment I started getting old. My first mistake was I agreed to play full court basketball. I don't know if anyone shared this. In, in my younger days, no problem. No sweat, full court, all day long. I can do that. Well, it had been a few years since I'd played, and, and I just had you know, enough pride, enough arrogance to say, yep, full court, all over it, let's do it, let's show up. So I'm there. It was a little sluggish at first. For some reason, I didn't have quite the same endurance that I used to have. But I'm making it. I'm chugging. You know, I'm, I'm, like, I'm the old guy that people respect on the court, right? You know, it's like, you're not first picked or anything, but you know, it's kind of like, that, you know, he's, he, he's got something. That, that was me. Well, there's one particular um, moment where my team is on defense and um, my teammate stole the ball. And, I, you know, so it's fast break. And I start running up the court and my teammate throws this beautiful, it's like a football pass, uh, you know, over the court. I'm past the half court line. I catch this ball. It's wonderful. Like I'm hearing chariots of fire playing, you know, it's, it's just like the, the Shekinah glory is all around me athletically. And it's wonderful. Catch the ball. It's just me and the basket until I see out of the corner of my eye, one of the defenders is just running. The young guy, oh, I hate him, the young guy is what I was running. It's like, you know, muscles and everything. And he's like coming around. And I see him, he's getting between me and the basket. And as I'm approaching, it's just me and him and, you know, a layup. Because let's be honest, I can't dunk it. But it's right there. He gets in front of me. And in years past, this would be like, I mean, nothing even mentally even needs to take place. It's just, it's just what your body does. If you're young, you take this for granted, right? You're not mentally calculating what you need to do in those moments. It's just muscle. You just do it. And so my brain, though, is saying, fake left, go right. Fake left, go right. You're going to fake left. He's going to think you're going left. You know, you know what to fake it. You fake left, go right. In my younger days, you just do it. And, and it works. Well, this time around, my brain says... Fake left, go right. My body says, nah, we're not going to do that. <laughs> we're not going to do that today. Um, in fact, we're probably never going to do that again, is sort of what my body <laughs> said. <laughs> and it was just sort of like, like my brain sent the signal. My, my legs just like locked up, you know? Like they didn't know what to do. Like, what do we, what do, we do? I don't know. It's like, what did you hear from up there? You know, then nobody knew. And I just... Boom, I face planted. I fell straight down onto the floor because my body could not respond. The ball goes rolling off down the court. And one of my teammates walks up to me, you know, he take, you know, he pulls me up because he's a good teammate. And he was like, What happened to you? And 
I said, I don't, I think I got old just in that moment. <laughs> I got old. Well, some of you don't have this feeling quite yet, unless you're dealing with a particular illness or ailment, perhaps, in your you. See, the, the gospel that I grew up with, I grew up in the church, I grew up hearing about the good news of Jesus, that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If I would you know, turn from my sin and put my faith in Christ that I would be forgiven eternally and have a place in heaven with him for all eternity. Like, I had heard that, but there was no accounting for this getting old stuff. In fact, there was no accounting for this death stuff. It's sort of like, this is just one big inconvenience and then you get past it and it's like it never happened. Going to heaven when I die was sort of the extent of the good news that was shared with me. But what if the gospel isn't just going to heaven when you die? What if it's actually more about heaven coming to where we live? I mean, Jesus didn't just drop tracks from heaven. He actually came down here and, and walked with us. And when he left, he didn't leave us as orphans. He sent his Holy Spirit. So the fall doesn't just affect us spiritually. It, it affects us physically, obviously. We're dealing with the repercussions of sin in the world. The wages of sin is death. And so the brokenness that is there, not just physically, but systemically, the injustice in the world, all of the strife, all of the tension, all of the warfare. But yeah, just personally, physically, getting older and dying. Your loved ones, your family members, getting old and dying. Or not even getting old, but dying. I love verse 11. There's gospel embedded here. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. If the whole idea is to evacuate this mess entirely, why is he coming back? About 20 years or so ago, a, a German filmmaker by the name of Wim Wenders created this now classic film called Wings of Desire. And some of you may have seen Wings of Desire. It's about an angel who falls in love with an earth woman, with a human being. And, right? Well, earth women are human beings, but you know what I mean? It's one of those unintentionally funny moments, right? An angel who falls in love with a human, right? Well, it was remade in a movie with Nicolas Cage and, and, and Meg Ryan. Maybe you saw that one. It was a terrible remake. But one of the major conceits of Wings of Desire, they didn't carry this over in, in, in City of Angels, which is the Nicolas Cage remake. Um, in Wings of Desire, the whole movie is in black and white until the moment that the angel decides to reject his angelic stature and become human and engage in a romance with the other woman. And at that point in the movie, the movie turns to color. And what Wim Wenders seems to be saying is that the world of heaven is black and white and gray. You know, it's gray. It's muddled and, and, and it's dark, you know, because it's religious, I suppose, is kind of the point of that. I'm not sure. But the world of humanity is in full living color. It's, it's, it's brighter. It's more vivid. Well, if we're reading the scriptures correctly, that's completely upside down. That's completely backwards. It is our world compared to the hyper-dimensionality of the place where God lives that is black and white or, or, or gray and muddled and dingy compared to the dimension where God reigns. Maybe we've got heaven all wrong. Maybe heaven is actually different than we think about it. Think of this for a second. 
So it's heaven. I don't know what your vision of heaven is. For a lot of us growing up, the way heaven is sort of like the place where the disembodied spirit goes. It's a spirit place. Maybe you picture clouds. You know, it's sort of airy. It's spiritual. You picture the angels that are there. Um, for some of us, the primary visions of, of heaven growing up were like the Tom and Jerry cartoons where they would go and wear diapers and play harps and that sort of thing. And like, that's kind of weird. But Jesus is, is in heaven in his body. You ever think about that? Like his tangible body that he rose from the grave with, his physical body is in heaven. And the same we assume with Enoch, for instance, if you remember from the Old Testament, so that Enoch walked with God and he was not, and the Lord took him. Essentially, Enoch was so godly that God was like, I'm just going to go ahead and not kill this one and let him come up with me. And he took Enoch in his body into heaven. And so Enoch is there. And Elijah was taken up into heaven in his body. And maybe, we're not quite sure, maybe Moses is actually there because there's this whole mystery about the Lord burying Moses. And then we learn later that uh, Michael and, and the devil are arguing over the body of Moses and this sort of thing. So Moses may be there. But at any rate, Jesus' glorified incarnate body is in heaven. So it, can, it cannot be a thin, sort of just you know, ethereal space. It's got to be thicker than we think it is. If Christ's glorified body is in the heavenly space, and his body is tangible, it's real. Remember, he's eating breakfast again. He's having those you know, fish on the beach with the disciples. If he can eat food and also walk through locked doors, defy matter and space, maybe heaven is not a thin sort of cosmic hyperbaric chamber for disembodied spirits. Maybe it's realer and truer and grander than any of us can even imagine. More dimensions than we have here. I think C.S. Lewis captured sort of the best illustration of how heaven works with his Narnia stories, right? You have, you have the regular world of England for Lewis, but then you go through the wardrobe and into this whole other land. It has not just its own oceans and continents and planets and stars, but it also has its own time. Time works differently in Narnia than it does back in merry old England. Maybe heaven is like that. Maybe heaven, though it's everywhere, because God is everywhere, you know, heaven is, is, is right beyond the veil of our own world, but maybe it's bigger inside than it is outside. The staggering beauty of this realer reality is that heaven is not a holding pattern, but an approaching land. It's actually coming to us. He's coming back the same way he left. Our own world is groaning for redemption, Paul says in Romans chapter 8. And in the consummation of the kingdom, as Christ is swiftly returning, every nook and cranny of this world will be gleaming with his glory. It will be as God intended it to be, finally, eternally. He's not crumbling it up and throwing it in the wastebind. In Revelation, Jesus says, I'm making all things New. He doesn't say I'm making all new things, but I'm making all things new. Imagine there is a fuller range of more vibrant colors than our complete spectrum. Imagine the new creation, the Himalayas, the pink that appears at dawn in the clouds, Angel Falls, the Emerald Hills of Ireland, the deep magic of England, the Pearl of Sudan, the Great Barrier Reef, the secret wonders of the Chinese wilderness, the crystal beauty of the Arctic, all of these pale, black and white, muddy compared to the heaven that is coming to earth. We worship a God whose wonders we will marvel at for all eternity because eternity cannot exhaust his wonders. 
We have a 10-dimensional Jesus in a heaven so heavy that our thin space cannot conceal it much longer. It must crash into this world, which is what the book of Acts is really all about. Heaven coming to earth, the kingdom of God taking over. Well, what's this got to do with us? The ascension of Christ means that the gospel's assurance to us is that being united to him by faith, we will be as he is and be where he is. Ever since the fall, everything has been winding down, dying, and decaying. But since the gospel of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, Jesus has been building his kingdom so that the Father's will will be done on earth here, just as it's done there. And we will not be disembodied spirits prancing about the ether of some outer spatial heaven. We will have new bodies with which to dance and sing and worship and work and play and love and laugh and eat and drink and run and swim on and on and on forever and ever and ever. In the last uh, two or three months of my pastorate there in in, in Vermont, I had to bury a dear friend of mine. Her name was Natalie. We had actually buried a... uh, a sequence of close friends of ours, mainly um, because of cancer, which doesn't discriminate young, old, healthy, unhealthy. I mean, cancer doesn't care. Natalie was in her early 60s. She was healthy. She ate well. She was thin. She walked every single day. She was as healthy as a early 60s woman could be. And she got a pancreatic cancer, and she died slowly, months. They gave her essentially six to eight weeks to live. She lasted about eight, nine months. And I would go multiple times a week and sit with her. They'd set up hospice for her in her um, uh, friend's basement apartment. And so I would just go and sit with her and read the Bible, and we would talk, and we would pray, sing sometimes. Our worship leader would come and, and lead us in some songs. And Natalie, just week after week, month after month, wasted away very, very slowly. And she went through these phases. You have to understand, you know, I, I don't have near enough time to talk about the personality that Natalie had. She was somewhat of um, uh, a gruff person. She was one of my first critics when I arrived at the church, um, which is great when one of your biggest critics becomes one of your biggest fans, when you can turn someone, you know, like that. Usually it goes the other way when the fan becomes a critic. That's not good. But she became um, just a dear friend to me and a, a great supporter to me. And her personality was such that she got into ruts where she wanted to hear the same scripture passage every time we'd come. And so we would go through certain weeks, and for, you know, a couple months, I'd be reading the exact same passage. She loved Ecclesiastes for some reason. I don't know, you know, why it's just everything's terrible, everything's meaningless. Uh, like, why do you want me to read this to you as you're dying? Everything's awful, you know. And then she liked the first part of Revelation, not even the good part where heaven comes down, but just all the things Jesus has against the churches. I have this against you. You're awful. You're terrible. You're a whore. You know, all these things. I'm like, why am I reading this? And I asked her one time, I was like, you know, just the letters. That's all she wanted. And, and I said, why? And she goes, he's not talking about me. And I'm like, oh, all right, okay. I guess there's some assurance there, I suppose. Well, towards the end, as she got weaker and weaker, she wanted to hear John chapter 10. And I must have read John chapter 10 at least 30-something times to Natalie. And John chapter 10, if you're not familiar, is where Jesus begins talking about the, um, the good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. And the sheep hear the voice of the shepherd. And it begins with the, the false shepherds who get into the sheep pen the wrong way, like they break into the sheep pen. And so it starts that way. But Her favorite verse out of John chapter 10 is verse 27, which says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And one day when I came to the end of that verse, she said, Jared, have you ever seen sheep jump? And at that time I hadn't. I I went home immediately after and YouTube, jumping sheep, just to see. And they're adorable. 
which is what she was getting at. She said, have you ever seen sheep jump? And I said, no. And she goes, you know, I used to go in, you know, my parents had sheep, and I would go in. And when you come in, especially, the, you know, like, the little ones, not the big ones, but the, you know, the, you know, the lambs, they, they jump, like, you know, like goats do something. Like, they jump. They just jump straight up. And they know why you're coming to, you know, to feed them or just to be there. And they're excited to see you. And that's what she was picturing was when the, the sheep hear the voice of Christ, they get excited and they jump. And she said, that's how I'm going to be when I see Jesus. Well, she died in, um, on January 1st, on, on January 1st, about three years ago. And um, I, I showed up at the house. I didn't know she had passed. Everyone at the house thought that I did know. I was just coming to see her. We had been on Christmas vacation. We had just come back. The first thing I wanted to do was go see Natalie, see how she was. And so I pull up to the house. I'm going in. I, I can tell something's different, but I didn't know that she had passed. I just thought, you know, she's getting sicker and sicker and, and, and less communicative. And so I just thought maybe there was just, like, things going on health-wise or what have you. And I learned that my friend had passed, like, in the midst of it, while they're actually giving us instructions of um, she, she wanted a plain pine box uh, to be placed in with just a simple sort of inscription on the top. And I learned that my friend passed as I'm helping her husband and a couple of the other, other elders put her inside her casket. And so I'm just, I'm reeling from the moment. Like the disciples, I, I feel like I'm three steps behind. I know this is coming, but it's, just, it's a shock in the moment. And I'm not processing. But John 10, 27 is coming to my mind. The sheep hear my voice. And I know them. And they follow me. And I'm looking at her body. It was like a skeleton with crepe paper on it. As we put her in this box. And I wanted to picture her jumping, dancing. The gospel has to speak to that. It has to answer for what death does to us. And it does. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. We are not going into death except in our dying bodies. We are more accurately heading towards real life. Things, Christians, are looking up. As dire as your circumstances may be, as terrible as your body may feel, maybe you are dealing with an illness or a sickness or someone close to you is, your resurrection body is promised to you and it will be like Christ's resurrection body, walking through walls, eating breakfast. It looked like him, but it didn't look like him. Our resurrection bodies will be the real us, finally, the true us, the us we were meant to be, the us revealed in Christ and reflective of him. As Dwight Moody famously quipped, someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Christian's vision of death requires a radical overhaul, a redefinition. We think of death now through the lens of the gospel as a kind of sleep, and we go from fearing death to actually mocking it. Paul says, where is your sting, O death? That's the power he has because of Christ's resurrection and ascension. He's holding the keys currently to death and the grave. And he gives this authority to us. It's this gospel event that propelled the early church into glorious growth. 
In his book, Gospel in a Pluralist Society, missiologist Leslie Newbegin says, mission begins with a kind of explosion of joy. The news that the rejected and crucified Jesus is alive is something that cannot possibly be suppressed. It must be told. Who could be silent about such a fact? The mission of the church in the pages of the New Testament is more like the fallout from a vast explosion, a radioactive fallout, which is not lethal, but life-giving. What you're going to see as you journey through the book of Acts is the glorious ripple effects from Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension. This is the epicenter of the transformation of the universe. Think about that in the early chapters as, as the early church is gathering together, devoting themselves to the teaching of the apostles. They're just gathering for Bible study. They're just gathering to have meals together. They're singing songs with each other. They're letting their leaders teach them from the Bible. All of that stuff, it, it seems just like normal religious life. According to the context of the gospel in the book of Acts, all of those things is how God takes over the world and reclaims it for himself. Christ has ascended, and he is ruling and reigning, and he is coming again to set things back to rights. Not just for Israel, but for all those who trust in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good, and you do good, and none of this is contingent on us, but all because of you. Your sovereign grace capturing our hearts, opening our eyes to behold the glory of your Son, to find him saving and sovereign for us. And Father, we thank you that you don't just leave us there, as wonderful and beautiful as it is to save us from our sins, to forgive us as if we'd never sinned, and credit to us the obedience of your Son as if we'd, al as if we'd always obeyed. You unite us to each other. You make not just strangers into friends, but enemies into brothers and sisters. What a wonderful word your gospel is. This one little word that the world finds foolish, stupid, silly, backwards, illogical, nonsense, scandalous. It's that little word that fells the devil. So we thank you for this gospel. May it prevail in our hearts and beyond that we would believe and many more would believe as we become your witnesses not just in the United States and Australia, but to the ends of the earth because of what you are doing through your Holy Spirit. Father, we believe, we ask that you would help our unbelief and press the glory of Christ into every corner of our heart. And it's in your Son's great and holy and precious name, the only name under heaven by which we may be saved, that we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.